Welcome to the Lovable Podcast. I'm Kelly Flanagan, clinical psychologist and author of Lovable, embracing what is truest about you so you can truly embrace your life. In this podcast, I'm walking with you each week for one year through Lovable's companion book, the year of listening, loving, and living. This companion book is currently available nowhere else, so I hope you'll join us on this journey as together we recognize, reveal, and resurrect your truest, worthiest, most lovable self. Can't shake these lies, they keep running around in my head. But what if I saw me the way that you see me? What if I believed it was true? What if I traded this shame and self hatred for a chance at believing? Hello again, everybody. Welcome to episode 10 of the Lovable Podcast. This week, we're unpacking week nine of Lovable's companion book, which is entitled, What to Do When Your Heart Feels Like a Jungle. So this week, we're going to build upon recent weeks in which we've begun the practice of observing our thoughts and feelings rather than getting swept away in them. Then we talked about the idea of reversing our approach to pain rather than sort of always wanting to move away from it, learning how to begin to approach it and move towards it. Um, and then this week we're going to talk about what to do if that pain, whether it be just sadness or fear or anger or shame or whatever, when it begins to feel a little messy, maybe a little overwhelming, what do, what do we do then? Um, but before we get into that, a reminder, these podcasts are being recorded every Wednesday morning at 9 o'clock Central Time, that's Chicago time on Facebook Live. Um, we had a number of new folks join us this week, and it was a blast, appreciated all of their contributions. Um, and so I'm just uh, grateful for the, the live interaction that's going on here and the way it's enriching this podcast. So join us uh, on Facebook Live Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock Central Time. The Facebook page is Dr. Kelly Flanagan. You can join us there. Um, I wouldn't expect you to remember that. If somebody told me to show up for a conversation at 9 a.m. On a, on a random Wednesday, I would never remember it. Um, so if you want a reminder, make sure you're subscribed to my weekly newsletter. You can go to drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com. Um, that's where I host my blog and everything else. And you can sign up in the right sidebar to get my weekly newsletter. It comes out every Wednesday morning at 5 a.m. Central Time. So you get that reminder that in just a few hours we're getting together on Facebook Live. It's got a link, so all you got to do is click it and, and get, it'll get you there. Now, when you sign up for the, the weekly newsletter, you also get a free copy of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto, and a free sample of Lovable. Uh, so it's a, uh, and you'll also get links to my blog posts when they come out. But only one email a week, and uh, go there, uh, check it out, sign up. Lots of good stuff. We'd love to have you join us. Um, speaking of Lovable, uh, this could be your first time hearing about it. I'm hearing more and more that people are coming across Lovable through the podcast, um, which obviously I'm thrilled about. Um, and uh, and so let me you know uh, tell you how to, to get Lovable if you haven't already done so. LovableTheBook.com. LovableTheBook.com. You find out a little bit more about Lovable, and it's got links there uh, for a bunch of online retailers where you can order the book. It's available in paperback, digital, and audio, um, but it's also available wherever books are sold. So if you've got a local bookstore um, that you want to support, uh, go down there uh, and, and talk, to a, talk to a real human being and, and order the book. Um, I also know, um, I'm so grateful, the number of people that have let me know that they're buying multiple copies of Lovable for their loved ones for, for Christmas. 
They want to pass on the, the comfort and clarity that the book brought them to the people they care about. And so thanks for doing that. And there's still plenty of time uh, to do that for your loved ones. So uh, lovablethebook.com or wherever you like to buy books, go check it out. Now, without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. Uh, there's so much good stuff in here. I thought about pulling out a few of my favorite uh, quotes from uh, people who were listening in and participating in the discussion. There was just there was too many good ones, uh, and, and so I just think I think I'm gonna let you check it out. Um, I will say, my dog Cole, he um, is in the room with me every time I record a podcast, and uh, we got to the 10th episode without him making a peep. This time, I think he snores a little bit. And I think he might also at some point growl or bark. So um, I tried to edit that out, but if it's in there, apologize for that. We uh, he's he's a good puppy, and it won't happen very often. Uh, thanks for your grace in that. Uh, okay, so without further ado, like I said, here we go. Uh, the tenth episode of the Lovable Podcast, and uh, thanks for listening in. Hello, Facebook Live. Thanks for joining us to record the tenth episode of the Lovable Podcast, and to discuss Week Nine of Lovable's companion book, The Year of Listening, Loving, and Living. This week's chapter is entitled, What to Do When Your Heart Feels Like a Jungle. In recent weeks, I've challenged you to do some really difficult exercises, each of which brings you a little closer to approaching and feeling some of the perhaps pain, maybe even shame, you could be experiencing. So this week, we're going to build on those ideas a little bit more, but mostly, we're going to talk about what to do if the feelings you're approaching begin to, or maybe even continue to feel, a little bit overwhelming. And as we become accustomed to doing in the podcast so far, I'd like to just pause for a few minutes before discussing this week's content and get your thoughts, reactions, and uh, questions in response to previous weeks and some of the practices that you're working through. So while you're thinking about that, um, I thought I would share, this isn't something that happened in the last week for me. I blogged about it actually right before Thanksgiving, but um, a a way that the practice of, of breathing into my physical pain um, actually was a, a part of rearranging my relationship to pain overall. So this, this happened about a month ago now. Uh, I was awoken in the middle of the night on a Sunday night um, with intense stabbing pain underneath my left big toe. Uh, it felt literally like someone was inserting a very sharp knife under my toe. It lasted for about 15 seconds and then the pain immediately subsided. And then 45 seconds later, it started again. <laughs> 15 seconds of excruciating pain, and then it subsided. And uh, it went this way all night long. And, and for about the first hour of it, all I could think of is how do I, how do I escape this pain? Are there any meds that I can take that would help? Um, I was sort of, I was up, I was clipping my toenails, looking under them, did I get a foreign object stuck? I was, I was searching for anything to do to eliminate the pain. And then about an hour or two in, you know, two in the morning now, it, it occurs to me, this this is gonna be with me all night. Um, and I need to practice, practice what I preach a little more. And, um, and so I began the breathing practice of taking in a deep natural breath and imagining that air as I take it in, inhaling, um, entering into the pain in my left big toe, filling that space and then exhaling. Um, and I found myself over the course of time as I did that, I found myself saying something that surprised even me, which was, uh, as the pain started and I started to breathe into it, um, thank you. Thank you for letting me know something is wrong. I'm going to take care of it. Thank you for letting me know something is wrong. I'm going to take care of it. Um, and this is not, this is not about saying that we want to invite pain or nurture pain or hold on to pain. 
but it is about saying that when our pain is present, whether it's physical or emotional, um, being present to it and being aware that it's it's telling us something is so important. And to be able to 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 practice even some sense of gratitude for what it might be telling us that healing is needed, um, that attention is needed in a certain area of our being or our body is really important. Um, and I, I got that idea um, for the first time, I think, in my life uh, from a doctor named Paul Brand. He's an author and a doctor. And this is a guy who sort of dedicated a lot of his life to trying to understand the disease leprosy. Um, and he went and lived in a leper colony um, for an extended period of time, thinking that if I can observe these people, I can begin to understand what is causing this horrible disease in which um, parts of people's bodies fall off, in which there's always festering wounds. And he was, he was getting nowhere with understanding sort of what was going on until one day he was trying to get into this shed and there was an old rusty padlock on the shed and he couldn't, he couldn't turn the key in the padlock. And then this little tiny kid comes up and, uh, and says, I can do that for you and turns the key as easy as can be. He's sitting there going, what just happened? And he looks down and the kid's hand, the flesh on it is torn up and bleeding. Um, and what he realized was that when he tried to turn the key, the pain of trying to turn that, that stuck key was stopping him from turning it. But the kid wasn't experiencing any pain in his, uh, in his extremities. And that's what allowed the, the kid to turn the key. The pain didn't stop him. And so what he began to discover is that leprosy is actually this systemic loss of pain um, to the point where um, these villagers would be sleeping at night and animals would come in to their huts at night and begin to gnaw on fingers, for instance. And this is where you began to see the loss of digits, um, but they wouldn't feel it. They wouldn't wake up because they didn't have any pain. Um, or they would be wearing shoes and not be able to feel the shoes rubbing, causing sores and the sores would get infected and they wouldn't feel the infection. Um, and he began to discover the, uh, the purpose, in a sense, of our pain. Um, and that when he tried to approximate pain for these folks who had lost the ability to feel it, for instance, putting sensors in their shoes and then having a wristwatch that would light up if they, they were getting too much pressure in their shoes, um, they would ignore the, the light on the, on the watch. Um, because it just wasn't powerful enough to get their attention. Um, that pain needs to be powerful enough to get our attention, to say there's something here that needs attention, that needs healing. Um, so anyways, it's, I guess that's a long way to say, a big part of healing is relearning our relationship to our pain, not making it want to go away immediately, um, but wanting to, to attend to it, to learn from it, to enter into it, and figure out what we're gonna do with it from there. So, um, and, and recently that, you know, that experience with my what turned out to be sciatic pain was uh, uh, an opportunity, I guess, for me to do that. Deb W. writes, again, for me, the concept of our thoughts being a river and us observing them from the bank has been a life-shifting, a heart-shifting experience. Um, so Deb W., again, this sense that we don't have to get caught up in our thoughts, um, feelings, and emotions, even our pain that we can observe it and learn from it, that we don't have to identify with it has been powerful. Um, and the more I'm talking to people who are listening to these episodes, it seems like that that particular idea and practice um, has had a particular power for people. So I think you're not alone, Deb. Heather writes, recently had to do a session of breathing through it, thanks to an anxiety attack before a stressful event I knew was coming. 
Oh man, Heather, thanks for that, that vulnerability and sharing that, um, that you had to, you had to learn how to be present to the anxiety and breathe through it. And in fact, a lot of times that's what, um, accelerates panic attacks is there's an initial, a level of anxiety and then the avoidant fear reaction kicks in, which, oh no, I can't feel that. Um, which of course causes more anxiety and then more, oh, oh, I can't feel this until the anxiety is really intense. Uh, so we actually can sort of short circuit a full blown panic attack, um, by saying, I'm going to be present to this anxiety and breathe through it. And that's what you did there. So, uh, that's pretty powerful stuff. Catherine writes, I was thinking of the role of prayer and it sounds like this is what you did. Um, yeah, you know, prayer, um, such a diverse experience. And, uh, I would say, I'll say for myself that prayer became a powerful experience in my life when my prayer time ceased to be a place where I said, God, please take this pain away from me. Um, and instead, uh, became a space in which I, I experienced God's presence with me in my pain. Um, and that not being alone in my pain, I could now move towards it and approach it and trust that I could handle it. Um, and that that's, that's how, how prayer was a transformed experience for me. When it was just about avoiding my pain, um, it somehow always made the pain worse. <laughs> Deb writes, when I start experiencing twinges in my lower back, I immediately start thinking, what is going on emotionally within me? It's been happening less often, thank goodness. Oh, Deb, so, you know, and we were talking about this last week, the, the intimate connection between mind, heart, and body, right? And that as we begin to, to approach our physical pain and relearn our relationship to physical pain, it will also retool our relationship to emotional pain. Um, and indeed, we can even address our emotional pain um, by uh, addressing the ways that emotional pain is getting expressed in the body and approaching those places where we're feeling it in the body. Um, and so you've, you've started to realize that, you know, that your stress and maybe emotional pain gets expressed in the lower back. Deb writes, yes, we tense up. I do yoga stretches, but start off slowly. Yeah, exactly, right? I thought the, <laughs> a long time ago, I thought the principle of the, the idea of yoga was to torture yourself, right? To put yourself in contortions that were painful. Um, only later, when I had a good teacher, did I realize that uh, one of the most valuable pieces of yoga is gradually pushing yourself into your discomfort zone, not past the point where you can handle the, the tension and uh, the discomfort. Um, but in doing that, again, you're physically embodying moving toward what is uncomfortable rather than trying to stay comfortable alone. And what is ironically that movement towards what is uncomfortable is what increases our flexibility <laughs> and our overall health and our sense of our capacity to handle the things we didn't think we could handle. Um, and so yoga practiced in that way is just a, a very valuable practice. Robin writes, I have a loved one in pain and she is not feeling well. Do you have any idea how I can help her without being a burden? Mm. Robin, I just had this question from somebody um, and as a th you can imagine as a therapist, um, that's the position I'm in oftentimes. Someone is coming to me with pain and asking for help. Um, but I need to be sensitive to the ways that people want to be helped or if they don't want to be helped at all. Um, so for instance, one of the questions would be, do you want me to help you 
uh, ease that pain eventually, or is that not what you need right now? Do you just need somebody to be with you in the pain? I think of Henry Nouwen's uh, uh, distinction between care and cure. That cure is help me get rid of this pain, care is be with me in this pain. And so I think first you've got to ask uh, and, and have a, a you know, an open conversation with your loved one about what are they needing the most right now? Is it is it cure or is it care? And if it's care, then you just get to be there. You get to be present in it. Um, if it's cure, um, then there's another conversation to have about what do you think um, could help uh, help you work through this pain, heal it, move through it. Um, if it's not going to go away, at the very least redeem it in some way. Um, that's a different conversation. But I think first you have to start with the question of care versus cure. Julie writes here, have been taking lots of quiet time to sit with things and process. Uh, so Julie, in terms of past practices, um, cultivating that space um, to be present to what you're thinking uh, and what's going on inside of you. We can't overemphasize that enough in here that, uh, you know, week, week one, week two, week three isn't just week one, week two, and week three, it's every week. That if we expect to be uh, sort of going on this inward journey, moving toward our true self, going through some of the stuff that we'll have to go through to get there, um, we're going to need that space. Uh, so, so good for you, Julie, for continuing the practice. Kelly writes, had terrible stomach aches all through childhood and was told it was all in my head. I now understand it was a reaction to the angry, stressful environment I grew up in. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Gosh, it's, it, it's both are true, right? Yes, it's in my head that, 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 this environment around me is affecting my head in the sense of my emotions and my my thoughts and feelings, and those are getting expressed in the body. Um, can we can we be can we hold both of those to be true? Kelly, I'm sorry that you went through that. Um, I'm so glad that you have the awareness now that those things are connected, and in that awareness, you get to start doing something about it. Um, and uh, and I trust that as you as you grow in that, you will redeem an awful lot of what you went through. Hannah writes. Been meditating on who I really would be if there was no shame in my life. Would I like myself? Would others like me? Is that the voice of shame discouraging me? Am I too comfortable with shame? And then, Hannah, I can't read the rest of, of your comment. Um, that's, a, that's a powerful practice um, to, to say, if I had no shame in my life, what would it look like? Um, and the... I think what I find myself immediate, the, the immediate reaction is be careful. Be careful of putting too much pressure on yourself to have a life and uh, an inner world where shame is no, is no longer present because then that can become another source of shame. Why can't I get rid of this altogether? Why am I feeling it again? Um, but to say, if I had a moment where shame wasn't in the driver's seat of my life, what would that look like? What would I say if I knew it was okay to have a voice what would I do if I knew I was totally worthy regardless of how it turned out? In that moment, what would I do? What would I do if, if when someone reacted negatively to an authentic expression of who I am, and I didn't feel any shame about that, what would I do differently with my life as a result? Um, I think it's powerful to ask ourselves about what moments like that would look like. Um, so thanks for sharing that. I know that who, whoever is listening to this, um, this podcast will... Um, Will benefit from hearing your questions. Deb W writes, Hannah, when shame showed up this past week, I made a point of saying, oh, hey there, shame. You'd love it if I listened to you right now. 
Deb, Deb, I love that, uh, in particularly in light of our conversation last week, where we talked about how playfulness can be so disarming to, to shame, in part because that playfulness is probably arising from our true self and our sense of worthiness. And, uh, and so there you are sort of being playful with it. Oh, you would love me to listen to you right now. Um, immediately, you are not your shame. You are responding to your shame, observing your shame. Um, and you're articulating that you have a choice about how you respond, um, that your sense of agency and sense of self resides outside of your shame. So powerful and playful. Julie writes, as you were reflecting on a shame-free moment, I thought of last week's discussion oh, about how we revisit the same lessons in new contexts. Yep, uh, exactly. Uh, we, one of the, you know, again, one of those tenets of this whole process isn't that at the end of this year of listening, loving, and living, uh, we are going to be shame-free. Um, in fact, um, and <laughs> this probably isn't a great way to sell books, part of what Lovable explains is that as you go through this progression from embracing your worthiness to finding your places of belonging to practicing your passion and finding a sense of purpose in the world, you will probably ultimately find yourself right back at the beginning. Um, as those practices out in the world uh, cause you to sort of question your sense of worth all over again because you're challenged in new ways. So um, yes, this is not about eliminating shame forever or feeling like you've, you've crossed the finish line. Um, this is about sort of falling into the rhythm of the way that we grow over and over again through and out of our shame once more. Julie writes, talking about it as a cycle and normalizing that is a salvation from the once and done uh, mentality is I think what you're saying. Yeah, the need to be fixed approach that is so pervasive. Keep ringing that cowbell. It's, oh, I appreciate that, Julie, because when I was saying it, I'm like, I've said this a lot of times before. Should I be saying it again? Um, so thanks for that uh, affirmation, Julie, that we need to hear that over and over. I need to hear it over and over personally because that is one of the most recurring sources of my suffering as I get back into the mentality of, well, when this happens, it'll all be good, <laughs> you know? When that's accomplished, when that project's done, when this kid is that age, when, you know, ugh, it's just unending. And uh, there's such freedom, actually, in being able to say, it's not, it's not done until it's done. We, you know, and so we have to learn how to embrace this process of growing and becoming um, and, uh, and sort of rejoicing that the process never ends because we see the way it's redeeming so much of what's what's come before it. So anyways, thanks for that that encouragement, Julie. Deb F writes, I agree with Julie, knowing it is a cycle and being okay with that is quite freeing, not to be fixed, but just observed like our thoughts. Yep, yeah, it's a consistent theme, isn't it, Deb F, that keeps coming up, which is let's get out of this fix-it mentality. It's, it's keeping us, <laughs> it's keeping us more stuck and more broken than anything else. Um, that fix it, I've got to escape the, the pain that I'm in, I've got to repair the brokenness that I experience and never have it again. That is so much of what's keeping us stuck. This is an awesome discussion. Uh, I think we could keep going and I'm going to, I'm going to just transition us into, into this next piece, which is actually, um, you, you'll see, uh, doesn't really take us into a, a totally new territory but it sort of is a moment to pause and reflect on the territory we're in. So I think we're going to really get to continue this conversation as we get into it. Um, so let's, let's do that. 
again, as we've been doing, I want to connect this piece of the companion book um, that we're about to read. I want to connect it back to Lovable. So for just a little bit of context uh, within Lovable, I'm going to read another small excerpt from chapter six of Lovable. And chapter six is entitled, The First Breadcrumb on the Way Back to Your Worthiness. Now, as I as I was sort of reading through this excerpt, it um, it reminded me of the complexity of writing Lovable. Because in any given moment in Lovable, there are multiple metaphors working together to illustrate a point. So if you try to just take an excerpt out of it, you go, well, breadcrumb. Well, that's because the, the chapter itself is focused on, on this, this uh, or it's sort of, it's written based upon this uh, Hansel and Gretel um, fairy tale. And, uh, and then there's all the other metaphors being pulled in from previous chapters about how um, we have a, a layer, a facade that we show to the world, then we have the darkness underneath that, and then our light, our true self, is underneath our underneath. So there's all sorts of language in here that can only fully be understood within the context of reading the whole, the whole book. But I think this is an important passage to sort of illustrate this, this idea of, number one, as we're going to get into in a minute, asking for help sorting through our inner world if we're needing it, and then the value of getting that help and doing it. So um, I'm going to go ahead and read that. I called the therapist and I did the therapy for about a year. And a year as a therapy client taught me far more than a decade as a therapist ever could. It taught me this. Anger isn't an inherently bad thing. Anger becomes a destructive thing when we allow it to become a reactive thing instead of harnessing it as a guiding thing. In other words, anger is the first breadcrumb on the path back to ourselves. So if we deny it, if we kick the breadcrumb into the underbrush, we lose our way. If we throw that breadcrumb at everyone else, we wound them and we still lose our way. But if we pick up that breadcrumb, attend to it, turn it over in our hands and in our hearts, appreciate it for what it is and what it has to teach us, then we can look for the next breadcrumb on the path leading back to our worthiness. In the years since my year of therapy, everything about the therapy I practice with my clients has changed. Before I often struggled with where to begin the process of healing shame. Now I know, every time, we begin by finding the first breadcrumb. We have to find the anger. Sometimes when it's been buried deep, that's hard to do. Other times, of course, it's very easy to do. But whether the finding is difficult or easy, it's always the beginning, and that's good news, because the trail of breadcrumbs ultimately leads us beneath our first layer facade and through the layer of darkness underneath to what's underneath our underneath. It is the trail that leads to the light, and there we find, lonely and waiting, the little one who has been standing all the while at the intersection of our worthiness and our shame. As you get reacquainted with that little one, you will also get reacquainted with the worthiness that has been preserved somewhere near the center of you. You will become grateful to him or her for holding on to the sense of worthiness you thought you'd lost. Then you will relieve the little one of this burden. You'll say, rest now, little one. I can take it from here. And that will be another beginning. It will be the beginning of trading in your anger for tenderness. You see, anger is a bottomless resource. It can't be reduced by expressing it. Anger begets anger. Anger feeds on itself. But anger can be exchanged. It can be traded in for the next breadcrumb, which is usually fear. And then your fear will lead you to your sorrow and sadness and grief. But the good news is that sorrow, sadness, and grief do diminish. When they are expressed and something else begins to grow in their place. Joy, lightness, tenderness, and eventually and blessedly, forgiveness. But you can't rush it, friend. The restoration of your heart can only happen one breadcrumb at a time. Start by looking for your anger and let it lead you back to everything that is lovable within you. Let it lead you home. So I don't, I don't so much want to focus on the anger piece today as 
um, how that passage sort of illustrates how complex it can be to begin to create the space in your life where suddenly all these emotions that you've been distracting yourself from, intentionally or unintentionally, begin to fill that space. And then this, this chapter from the companion book that we're going to read today begins to get at, if it starts to feel a little bit overwhelming, what do you do? Um, and so let's get into that, this next chapter. Week 9. What to do when your heart feels like a jungle. Are your new shoes in your closet? My wife is trying to make my youngest son, Quinn, look presentable for a Christmas concert. He usually refuses to wear anything except athletic pants, but she has somehow, miraculously, talked him into a pair of corduroys. The finishing touch will be a pair of shoes that don't look like they've been through a semester of playground wars. He looks up from the book he's reading. His face is deadly serious as he responds, Yeah, but I'm not going to look for them. It's a jungle in there. It's a jungle inside Quinn's closet, and it's a jungle inside our hearts. It can be scary to venture into our inner world because we know the mess we are likely to encounter once we get in there. Facing our feelings is the most courageous thing we'll ever do. It requires so much courage, even the bravest warriors are often afraid to do so. This was heartbreakingly illustrated in the first season of the HBO drama In Treatment, when an uber-confident Air Force pilot, played by Blair Underwood, finally allows himself to feel the guilt and sorrow of the children he killed in a bombing run. As the pain surfaces, as his body is racked by sobs and his strong facade crumbles in an instant, the viewer is left with no doubt about the utter bravery of such a moment. Our feelings are the last place we want to go, but they are the only place we must go. Quinn says, it's a jungle in there, and my wife stands still. I can see the wheels turning. Is this an exaggeration that needs to be corrected, an insurrection that needs to be put down, or is it the truth? She settles on, I'll sort it out with you. If we work together, I'm sure we'll find what we're looking for. They disappear into his room, and for the next hour, I can hear thumping and bumping and the chatter of conversation and the moaning and groaning of intermittent conflict. Eventually, my son walks out of his room, and he's a little bit taller, in part because he's wearing a new pair of shoes, but I think he's standing a little taller, too, because he entered his jungle and sorted it out. Quinn waded into his mess with a companion, and they sorted it out together, and he found what he was looking for. When we enter the jungle of our hearts, we too may need a guide who joins us, someone who understands closets and the daunting things they harbor, someone who can stand strong with us as we patiently sort through the chaos. You might know who that person is. You may not. If not, there is a therapist somewhere waiting to join you. When we do finally enter the jungle of our hearts, we will find something far more valuable than a pair of shoes. We will find out who we really are. We will find our true self. In the middle of our digging, we will discover our true self is not some inner object we're digging for. Our true self is even better than that. Our true self is the part of us doing the digging. Our true self is the courage to face our fears. Our true self is the growing confidence we can handle them. Our true self is the awareness that observes our anger rather than acting on it. Our true self is the freedom to move toward our fear rather than away from it. Our true self is the patience to wait out our sadness and sorrow. Our true self is the love that's left when our jungle finally withers away. Our true self is the part of us that walks away from the digging and sorting, standing a little taller, because it knows it's not alone. It knows it can handle the darkness within. It knows there is light within. It knows there is light in the world. Indeed, it knows it is a part of the light in the world. And all that's left to do is shine. All right, so that's the reading for this week. You know, And again, as always, it's just sort of scratching the surface. 
Um, and again, it gets at this idea that it's it's really easy to identify ourselves with our thoughts and feelings and pain. But just as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, in the same way that we're not the stream of our thoughts, but rather we're the self sitting outside of the stream and observing it, we are also not our pain. We're the part of us that feels the pain, that endures it, that sorts it out, that redeems it. Um, but again, I think even more importantly for this week's reading, um, the focus is on the fact that when we do have the courage to approach our pain, touch it, sort of wade into it, sometimes it can get overwhelming and confusing. Um, and it's essential that we know it's okay to ask for help. Um, so that's that's a. would love to hear your reactions in general, but I also want to focus a little bit this week on... Um, experiences, for instance, maybe in which you've received help, advice you can can give folks for getting help if they're starting to feel overwhelmed um, by the process, um, resistance that might arise. You know, I think we think we all have to be aware of the resistance that arises within us to the idea of getting help so that we can be aware of that and address it and not let it stop us. So I'd like to have a conversation around that, around that idea of help, reaching out for help when um, we're, we're not quite sure we can sort of wade through it on our own. Julie writes, the passage from Lovable was an articulate description of process. What page, please? Would like to read it again. Listeners might too. Thanks, Julie, for that question. I can tell you the page number in Lovable, at least in the paperback version, is page 59. And that page will change depending upon how big your font is in the ebook. But in the paperback, it's page 59. Again, chapter 6. Heather writes, reaching out for help, what a foreign concept for many, myself included. Heather adds, but I am here, we are here, so apparently we are learning to ask for the help. That's right, Heather, I, uh, this, um, making yourself available for something like this is a great example of saying, yeah, I, I don't have it all figured out and I need some help and I can let that be known in public. Um, and I've said this before on this podcast, the, the courage you have in doing that um, and in, in embracing that you're worth helping, holy cow, um, that's, uh, that's a powerful thing. And I'm, I'm impressed by all of you for having the courage to do that. And you are worth helping, all of you. Um, and there's this reciprocal thing. It's this, it's this mutuality that happens, right? Um, I walk away from every episode helped by you. Um, so this is not for one second about uh, you know, me being the helper and whoever's listening or whoever I'm talking to being the help. This is about a mutuality in the helping process. Um, and if we can, if we can trust that, if we can believe that sometimes that makes it easier to ask for help. Deb F writes, making that call for help is the hardest thing to do, but it is so worth it. If you are overwhelmed, ask those you trust for references. Yeah, I get this, uh, question all the time by email from people in different States or even in different countries. Uh, do you have any recommendations for somebody that I can see? And I always make two recommendations. Oftentimes I don't. Um, sometimes I do. Um, but oftentimes I don't. And my recommendation is, number one, ask the people around you. Ask friends and family. You know, we don't, you don't sit down at, at uh, um, I don't know, you don't sit out, down at the coffee hour at church and say, oh, hey, by the way, I've been working with this therapist who's been so helpful. Um this doesn't come up in normal conversation, but you'll be amazed when you start asking people for references, how many people say, oh my gosh, I worked with this person who helped me so much three years ago, and here's their number, you know, give them a call. Uh, you, you will more often than not be surprised by that. Um, and then also, the Psychology Today Therapist Finder, uh, so psychologytoday.com, 
and on their main homepage is their, their search engine for their registered providers is a powerful tool. Um, there's all sorts of ways to filter therapists by training and specialty and, and everything else and a powerful way to find people in your area. Um, usually their profiles will link to their website, so you'll be able to go to their website and start to get a feel for them. It's a good way to sort of get into that process of, of asking for help. Deb F. writes, However, after years of therapy, your book, Dr. Kelly, helped me get past the recycle phase and to realize that who I am is okay, not perfect, but not needing to be perfect. Wow, Deb, um, I'm honored to hear that. Can I just make one book recommendation? I think I've made it on here before. Tattoos on the Heart by Gregory Boyle. Um, if you want affirmation that transformation begins with embracing that you are okay exactly the way you are, read that book. It is beautiful. It messes me up every time. Check it out. Marv writes, For many years I thought I searched outside myself for help, which I called truth or answers to help my ego. Now I know the answers within. There it is, Marv. Um, we... Yeah, the the ego has a way of sort of justifying these um, what look like very virtuous ways of being, right? Well, I'm on a search for truth. Um, well, I'm trying to to tell truth to power. I'm trying to um, be righteous and moral as a way of sort of taking all of those things and and using them to justify an outward journey in which we're looking for our sense of worthiness uh, and truth everywhere else, rather than taking that inward journey. So, um, thanks for. Thanks for pointing that out, that the outward journey is often disguised by that belief. Okay, so this week's practice is probably more of a recommendation or a suggestion than a practice. So I'll go ahead and read it, and then uh, we can discuss more some of the reasons it might feel actually sort of like the hardest thing that uh, any of us have tried to do so far. So I'll get into that. Week 9 practice. Until now, I've suggested it might be helpful to ask someone to join you as you listen your way through these months. This week, I'm going to suggest we make that the exercise of the week. In Lovable, I thoroughly explore the idea that embracing your worthiness is up to you and you alone. We cannot truly receive love until we have embraced that we are worthy of love. However, we all need someone to walk with us as we do so. We don't depend upon this person or people for our sense of worth, but we can lean upon them when the going gets difficult or we begin to feel lost. This might be the most difficult thing you've done so far in these months of listening. If you haven't done so already, now is the time to identify a friend or companion or elder who is skilled in matters of the mind and the soul. In other words, someone who knows they can't fix you, someone who is gifted at listening and being present, someone who stays calm in the midst of chaos, someone who can ask questions that help you find new answers within yourself. Your only job is to tell them what is going on inside of you and the story that created your cluttered closet. To be honest, many of us do not have someone like that in our life. If that is the case for you, now might be the time to call a therapist. You will probably want to hesitate on this. Try not to. But if you do, note the internal objections that arise to seeing a therapist. Then make the call anyway. Before you meet with them, explain what you are doing and what you are needing and why you are hesitating. If their response to you makes you feel safe and encouraged, you have likely found the right person. You don't have to walk this road alone. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about whatever resistance might arise within you as you think about doing this, um, and or in the past when you when you reflect on times in the past when you might have been contemplating reaching out for help or did what was some of the resistance that sort of rose up in you? And I'll give you a couple quick examples from my own experience. Um, the day after I went to see my therapist for the very first time, 
I had two thoughts that came up. Number one, I'm so privileged. Um, I should feel guilty about being able to have the resources and the time and the freedom to do this kind of work. Um, so I sort of shamed myself for being privileged enough to be able to, to heal. Um, number two, I am sort of being a baby. My pain isn't that bad. And uh, surely that time could be used by someone who needs it more. Um, and those were the two that, that came up. I was able to observe them and get through that and continue with the therapy, but a lot of people don't. I think they let they let those sorts of thoughts stop them from reaching out for help. Um, so be curious to hear uh, more from you about what kinds of thoughts um, you've noticed or what come up when you think about reaching out for help. Heather writes, this passage reminds me that I need a coffee date with one of my besties that has an amazing amount of zen. <laughs> Normally we meet socially with the husbands, but when I ask for quiet time with her, it always helps. Uh, Heather, that's that's a, a great example of oftentimes we have we do have someone in our life that we go, when I walk away from that space and that time with that person, I feel more centered. Um, I feel more of a sense of connection to who I am. I feel less alone. Um, and we have to be really intentional about about cultivating those times and those spaces with those people. So um, I do hope as people are listening to this, if someone is coming to mind, uh, someone you say, gosh, I haven't gotten together with them in two months, then that would be someone that you'd reach out to. I also hear as a therapist, I hear uh, folks voice those objections to receiving the very help that they've already asked for. <laughs> happens all the time. Um, and sometimes those concerns revolve around um, it's not fair to do this to you, the therapist. It's not fair to put, how, aren't, don't you get burnt out? How do you handle all of these emotions that come at, come at you all day? Um, so this sort of resistance to receiving help is couched as, I'm, I'm worried for you and I don't want to overburden you. I'm going to be too much for you. Um, uh, or the more classically, um, I even worry that my therapist will reject me once they know about my whole story right? Um, yeah, they're a therapist, but what are they really thinking inside? Um, or, you know, we sort of, you know, I hear it all the time. Um, I really need help and I'm too busy. I just don't have time to schedule this, this hour right now. So sometimes the resistance rises up as I just got so much going on. I really can't work this in. Um, so all sorts of ways that even, even when we know we need help and we maybe even have already asked for it, we continue to, to resist the help we might receive. Brenda writes, I don't have time to do this right now. Maybe during the summer I can get to the bottom of this, and then I just break at the most inconvenient times instead. Oh my gosh, Brenda, that is such so well said. Um, yeah, I just break at the most inconvenient times. Can we all take that in? There's never, there's never a convenient time to go get help. Um, I, I think, I think you've hit on that, Brenda that we tell ourselves, well, yeah, when I have a little more space or when this happens or when that happens, it's never convenient to get help. And then um, it's always a very inconvenient time to, to ultimately realize that you have to have help right now. Um, and so the best time to get help if you realize that you need it is now and to ask for it, to ask for a companion to walk with you through the tough stuff um, before it gets to the point of crisis even. Karen writes, yes, I often think, how can I whine about this, what, this whatever, when so many people have it so much worse? Yeah. Um, in, I think it is in Rising Strong, Brene Brown talks about how a common form of shaming is pain comparing. 
um, that uh, my pain is worse than yours or my pain isn't as bad as somebody else's. Um, that it's essentially a, a, a subtle hidden way of saying you're not, you're not worthy of having a voice about your pain. You're not worthy of, um, of, of help for your pain. Um, it's just, it just doesn't justify what you're asking for. Um, it's, it's a subtle way of, of shaming. And, uh, that, that, I think it's, so it's a, it's a way that that voice of shame pipes up within us and just says, nah, others have it worse. You don't really deserve attention and care for this. Um, and we have to call that voice out and, and listen for a better voice that says, yeah, your pain matters. Your pain is meaningful. It is your pain. Um, so you're the only person who gets to work on healing it. Um, so let's get started. Let's, let's do that. Deb F. writes, setting appointments for the next session while there kept me going. I don't like canceling appointments, like paying for yoga classes in advance. Laugh out loud. Um, you know, uh, a practice that I have adopted, Deb F., in my therapy practice um, is, I think it's pretty standard for therapists to have a session and then schedule the next session at the end. Um, but what I've discovered over the years is that typically what happens in a session can can be uncomfortable and painful. And so if you wait till the end to schedule the next visit, you're asking a person to schedule the, the next moment of discomfort. <laughs> and that doesn't, no one wants to do that, you know? And so if you wait till the end to schedule, um, you'll get a higher rate of, oh, you know, I don't know that I can come in next week, or I don't, you know, let me get back to you. And so I schedule sessions, the next session at the beginning. We look at our schedules and I say, okay, next Wednesday at one, are you good for next Wednesday at one? Yeah, okay, um, let's plan on that. And then we do our session. Um, and it allows it allows that commitment to the therapy to happen a little more objectively. Um, so, and I couldn't agree with you more. If you try to, if you try to depend upon having to have the willpower to ask for help over and over again, uh, it, it's so hard to do. But if you can get in a habit of just assuming, okay, I've asked for the help once and now we're going to be in the rhythm of, of I'm going to be helped, uh, much, much greater chance of sticking with it. Okay, then, uh, you know, for the sake of, of time, uh, I think we'll wrap up here. I feel like we could keep going. Um, but we'll wrap things up for this week. Uh, now, next time, we'll continue to build upon these ideas and this practice as we get into week 10 of the year of Listening, Loving, and Living. And it's entitled, Why Shame is the Beginning of Your Story, Not the End of It. Uh, so, you know, this has all been building, right? We we had creating space to think and feel. We had observe, learning to observe our thoughts and feelings beginning to observe and relate differently to specific types of thoughts and feelings, painful ones. And now we're going to zero in even further on a very specific type of painful thought and feeling, which is shame. Um, but we're going to start off with, I think, a very encouraging um, uh, look at that and uh, excited to share that with you. So until then, till next week, remember, you're not alone. You don't have to do any of this alone because you're lovable. Thanks again for joining us on the Lovable Podcast. Remember, this companion book can stand on its own, but it stands a little taller and a little stronger on the shoulders of Lovable. So if you have not picked up a copy of Lovable yet, it is available wherever books are sold, and you can get it in paperback, digital, or audio format. If you'd like to simply download a sample of Lovable, you can go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com. In the right sidebar, sign up to receive my blog post by email, and you will immediately receive a free sample of Lovable and a free copy of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto. The music for the Lovable Podcast is courtesy of Ellie Holcomb and is entitled Wonderfully Made from her album Red Sea Road. 
Until next week, friends, remember, you are lovable.